everything. It was about 10 years ago that I was officiating a certain funeral of a lady who had attended our church for quite some time. To protect the innocent, I will call her Martha. And there I was over at Victor Valley Mortuary in their chapel officiating her service. And I looked out to her family members and friends, um, most of whom I'd never met before. And I just felt as I was talking at her funeral, I was standing at the podium maybe about 12 feet uh, from her casket that was uh, to my left. And as I was speaking to the the family and friends there, I, I just was feeling like there wasn't a connection with the family and friends. So I thought to myself, what I'll do is I'll share something that lets them know that I did have a connection with their loved one who had passed, with, with Martha. And so I began to share with them this story. I said, one thing I appreciated about Martha is I noticed over the years that she attended our church. In the winter time, when it was a little cold in the building, she would always come to church wearing her little white gloves. And she would come wearing those white gloves. And I said, I appreciated that uh, about Martha because, to be honest with you, my hands really only have two settings. Uh, They're either hot and clammy or cadaver cold. And then it hit me. I'm standing 12 foot from the woman's casket, and I just used the word cadaver in a funeral message. And so as I quickly looked over my shoulder, there was no hole to crawl into. And so I tried my best to gloss it over and finish the service. For some reason or another, that family never called me after that day. I'm I'm not quite sure exactly why, but I was reminded yet again that words do matter, right? Words matter. You go to a doctor, and a few words from the doctor's mouth will either cause you to leave his office and throw a party, or leave the office and begin planning your funeral. A a few words from someone in a position of authority, like a police officer, or better yet, even a judge, a few words can make the difference between the handcuffs being taken off and you going home that night to spending the rest of your life in prison. Words do matter. And when it comes to Christians and the words that come out of our mouths, Paul makes the case, and frankly the whole New Testament makes the case, that for Christians, words especially matter. Our words can either draw people into a relationship with Christ, or they can cause them to run for the hills, saying, I want nothing to do with you or your God. Words do matter. I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. My original plan was to have us finish Uh, the book today, but uh, there's just too many good things, Uh, too many good things in Colossians chapter 4. So uh, we'll tackle verses 2 through 6 over the next few minutes, and next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll finish chapter 4. So I need you to have those Bibles open to Colossians chapter 4. We're starting in verse 2 as Paul talks to us about the power of the tongue. And in particular, he'll share with us uh, three things that our Christian tongues, our Christ-following tongues must engage in as we follow our Lord and Savior. I encourage you also to have your message notes handy and a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. Jesus Christ can help our tongues and can help our language be a blessing to those around us. Amen? Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer 
being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anyone. May God bless us as we study His Word together today. Would you pray with me? Father, You are our awesome, awesome God. Lord Jesus, You are our awesome Savior. And Holy Spirit, You are our promised Teacher. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would do what Jesus said You would do. That You would come and remind us of what our Lord has taught us. That You would open our minds and hearts to the truth of Your Word. And that You would help us as You live inside of us to live out these truths for Your honor and glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, turn to the person next to you and say, it's going to happen again. It's going to be another good one. Go ahead. Amen. Raise your hand if you don't believe what you just said. Good, I don't see any hands. That's good to see. And I'll uh, glance down quickly just in case some of you get any funny ideas of raising your hand in a couple seconds. All right, so we're in Colossians chapter 4. In chapter 3, remember what Paul did in that great chapter. He shared with us 11 sins of the sinful nature. And we've spent a couple weeks talking about this. How when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, we took that old sin, the, the sexual immorality and the, the lying and the slander and the anger and the rage and the lust. And we took off those 11 sins of the old nature and we, we buried it, didn't we? We crucified it and we, we buried it. And then Paul went on to say, if that analogy you know, doesn't quite uh, sink in, then think of it this way. It's like old, clothes, old clothing, like old grave clothes that we have taken off and we've left it behind. And then near the end of chapter 3, he says, we don't just take off the old, we put on the new. And he lists ten of those layers of clothing that we put on when we follow Christ. We have to make sure we put on compassion and we need to make sure that we put on uh, kindness. We need to make sure we put on love and peace and those others that he mentioned there in chapter 3. And then here early in chapter 4, Paul is going to be continuing this thought of putting on the things of the new nature. And he's going to identify three things that our tongues need to be doing. Because as James tells us in the book of James, our tongues are like a fire. Our tongues are like uh, full of deadly snake poison. James says we have to be so careful because no man can tame the tongue. It's like a tiny rudder on a large ship. It's a small part of the body, but it steers the whole course of our lives and can get us into so much trouble. And so James makes that case that we have to be so careful with these tongues of ours. And here Paul will piggyback, I think, on what James has already written years earlier. And he will teach us three things that our tongues should be doing as we follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're going to look at each of those today in these five verses. Number one, our Christ-following tongues should be praying. Would you agree with that? Our Christ-following tongues, and you've probably never heard that, those words used together like that before. Christ-following tongues, what do you mean by that? Well, my body is following Christ, right? My heart and soul and spirit within this body are following Christ. And it's just a simple truth. Wherever my body goes, my tongue goes with me, right? 
And so if my body, if my soul, my spirit, my heart are following Jesus Christ, my tongue has no choice but to follow. So my Christ-following tongue should be number one, praying. And Paul really identifies four goals here for praying uh, in our communication. Number one, our, our praying should be faithful. The first of four things that our prayer should be is, is faithful. should be faithful. In verse 2 he writes, devote yourselves to prayer. I like how the message translates this part of the verse. It says, pray diligently. In other words, we should pray and we should keep praying and we shouldn't quit praying. Too many of us pray only at certain times of the day. Maybe we'll lift up a quick 15 second prayer before we chow down and eat our meal. Uh, Perhaps we lift up a quick 30-second prayer right before uh, we go to bed because that was the tradition we were taught by our parents or by others who trained us in the faith. And so we lift up these token, quick, uh, very rote prayers so often, and that's not at all what Paul's talking about. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it was the first day of the Christian church. We just read in in the verses before that that some 3,000 people came to a saving knowledge of Christ and were baptized on that first day of the church. And then it gives a description of the early church's priorities in Acts 2.42, and this is what it says. It says that church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and number four, to prayer. That was one of the top four priorities of the early church. And that revival that broke forth in Jerusalem in those early days of the Christian church was to a large extent contingent upon the prayer priority of that early church. Prayer is critical. It is an important, vital part of our communication as Christians. So as followers of Jesus, we should be in constant fellowship with God so that we can maintain an open line of communication with God and talk with Him naturally throughout the day. Our praying should be faithful. But Paul also says our praying should be watchful. Our praying should be watchful. I was reminded as I read these words in verse 2 of what Jesus said there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, He went in just a few hours before He was arrested and led to the cross. He went into that garden and He had his 11 of the 12 disciples with Him. Judas Iscariot had already taken off to go to the chief priest and get His blood money so that He could betray Jesus into their hands. And So Jesus had 11 of His 12 disciples. He leads them into a garden. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, He takes His top three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and leads them a little further into the garden where He was going to pray. And he tells them to pray with him. And so Jesus goes off a little further, prays for about an hour or so, comes back. And what does he see when he gets back to Peter, James, and John? Those guys are sleeping. They're asleep, right? And so what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, could you men not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. So what does it mean to be watchful in praying? Well, sometimes uh, when my kids and I are praying right before bed, we do this almost every night. We'll come together as a family, uh, kneel down in the family room or in one of the bedrooms, and we'll say our prayers before bedtime. And so sometimes as we're kneeling down and praying, uh, this dad will peek to see if any of the kids are opening their eyes during the prayers. So that's what being watchful in prayer means, right? For me to open my eyes to make sure nobody's peeking, right? Yeah, not exactly. 
doesn't mean you're looking to see if someone is physically peeking. What does it mean? It means to be spiritually open-eyed during prayer. To have your eyes wide open, your spiritual eyes aware of what is going on around you. Aware of Satan's temptations and aware of the pull of our sinful natures that try to pull us away from God and try to grab those old grave clothes and convince us to put them back on. And so being watchful means we're aware of the pull of sin in our own lives. We're aware of the pull of sin around us. We're aware of the prayer needs around us. We're aware of what God is trying to accomplish in our lives and in the lives of our our fellow Christians in our church. We have wide-eyed awareness of what God is trying to do and at the same time of what Satan, our enemy, is trying to do. Jesus says we must be watchful. Number three, our praying should be thankful. Paul writes in verse 2 that we should be thankful in our prayers as we talked about during our January prayer series. As a rule of thumb, all of our prayers should have a healthy dose of praising God for who He is and thanking Him for what He's done. Our prayers as a rule of thumb should have a healthy dose of praise and thanks. So when we focus our minds and tongues on praising God for who He is and thanking Him for what He's done, it gets our prayers moving in the right direction. I found it's nearly impossible to pray right when our attitudes stink. Wouldn't you agree? If your attitude stinks, are you lifting up a powerful prayer? I can't believe that person did that to me. I can't believe God didn't answer. Oh, Lord, you're so good. No, it just doesn't work. Even if you're good at faking it, even if you have a good poker face, it doesn't work. If our attitudes stink, we can't pray right. But if we begin our prayers with a healthy dose of praise and thanks, moving away from what we tend to do as human beings, focus on the negative. I'm guilty, aren't you? As human beings, we tend to focus on the negative instead of the positive. As we force our minds and our hearts to focus on the good things that our Lord and Savior has done, as we lift Him up and praise Him for who He is, that circumstances never change, oh, you'll find that your praying will be much more in line with what God has in mind. And so we must pray faithfully. Our praying should secondly be watchful. Our praying should be thankful. And then finally, Paul says that our praying must be purposeful. We find this in verses 3 and 4. Notice what Paul asks his readers to pray for him and for his ministry regarding. He says, pray that uh, that God will open a door for our message so that we may clearly proclaim the mystery of Christ. What a great prayer. What a wonderful prayer. Paul's suggesting that Christians lift up this very heartfelt, very purposeful prayer that God would make a way for him to share the good news of Christ. And when he shares it, he wants the meaning of his words to be crystal clear so everyone can plainly understand what he's preaching. And why does Paul want this? He wants it because he desires for non-Christians to get saved And he desires for Christians to be built up in the faith. And so this is his prayer. Please, would you pray for me? Pray for my ministry team that God would open a door for the message so that we can proclaim clearly the mystery of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second thing that our Christ-following tongues should be doing. So, first of all, church, our Christ-following tongues should be... Okay, everybody together, our Christ-following tongues should be... And then secondly, Paul says, our Christ-following tongues should be proclaiming God's Word. It should be proclaiming God's Word. Paul's prayer request in verses 3 and 4 I think is pretty remarkable. Because if you think about it, 
This is not a normal prayer request, considering the circumstances that Paul found himself in. You remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? You remember? He was in the city of Rome. And where was he in the city of Rome? He was in the slammer, wasn't he? He was in jail. And so you think about this. Paul is writing this letter, Colossians, to a group of Christians in Colossae, none of whom were incarcerated. They were as free as a bird, weren't they? Paul's the one in chains. Paul's the one under house arrest. Paul's the one with one of those Roman guards standing near him at all times to guard him and make sure he doesn't get involved in any funny business or try to escape his arrest. And so Paul is incarcerated. So I want to ask you, imagine yourself in jail. Some of us don't have to imagine too hard because we've been there and done that. But imagine yourself in jail writing to some Christians who were not in jail, who were prayer warriors. What might you ask them to pray for? What might you ask them to pray for? What prayer request would you give them? Here's a couple possibilities. Maybe you'd say, uh, would you please pray that God gets me out of here? Not a, an uncommon prayer request, considering the circumstances, don't you think? Pray that God gets me out of here because I didn't do it. Remember, Paul was falsely accused. It was a bogus charge, something he hadn't done. But that didn't change the fact he was still sitting in jail. So it would be normal. We would expect it. We wouldn't fault him at all for saying, pray that God gets me out of here because I'm innocent. Maybe we'd have this prayer request if we had a, a jail communication card with a, a, a white back on it that we would fill a prayer request out on. Maybe we'd say, well, would you pray that God gives me the right words to say in my trial so that the judge will know the truth and set me free? But interestingly, Paul doesn't submit those prayer requests at all, does he? Nothing about pray that I'll be released. Nothing about pray that I have the right words to get the judge to have mercy on me. Paul submits this prayer request that interestingly is asking them to pray that he will continue to proclaim the word clearly, which when you think about it, was the very thing that got him incarcerated in the first place. Think about it. Help me to continue to speak that which caused me to be arrested in the first place and falsely accused and thrown in the slammer. Remarkable, Paul's prayer request here. Let me ask you, isn't that the exact thing that Paul got himself in trouble for time and time again? Proclaiming the Word of God clearly to people that didn't want to hear it? It was exactly what got him in trouble over the years. Whenever Paul was arrested or whenever he was beaten or whenever he was imprisoned, it inevitably was because of one of two reasons. Either he was arrested and beaten and thrown in prison because the folks didn't like the results that Paul got with his preaching. Far too many people were accepting Christ and getting saved. Or they simply didn't like the message that was being truthfully preached about Jesus Christ. So they either didn't like the message or they didn't like the results. And that's why time and time again, he would get thrown in prison. What if we were to pray prayer requests similar to Paul's prayer request here? Uh, what if we were to pray something like this or submit this kind of prayer request? Uh, uh, would you please pray that God would give me clarity and boldness in sharing 
the good news of Jesus Christ with my brother-in-law? Because my brother-in-law just chewed me out a few minutes ago and said, I want to hear nothing about you and your Jesus. Shut up about this Jesus thing. So I've got this prayer request. Would you, would you help me to pray more boldly to share the gospel with my brother-in-law? Or maybe my spouse, my husband or my wife, wants nothing to do with the message of Jesus. My kids are saying as I invite them week after week to come to church with me. They say, no, I'm not interested. No, I don't want to go. Shut up about that Jesus thing. I'm not into church. I don't want to go. Stop asking me. God, would you give me clarity and boldness to keep asking anyway? I've got that classmate that says, you know what? You need to stop what you're doing. It makes me comfortable, uncomfortable when you have that Bible in your backpack. It makes me uncomfortable when I see you bowing your head and praying before lunch. You know, would you stop doing that? God, would you give me boldness to speak your word more plainly and more boldly? Would you give me boldness to keep bringing my Bible to school? Would you give me boldness to keep praying before lunch, even if everyone in the cafeteria is doing something completely different? Do we pray these kind of prayers? Because I know about you, Paul's prayer based on the circumstances that he found himself in, absolutely inspire me. I wish I would pray like him. Far too often, we lift up bashful prayers. Far too often, we don't ask that God would help us even more faithfully and more clearly and more boldly proclaim his word that people desperately need to hear. What a wonderful thing when God inspires us to pray the theme verses in the book of Romans. God, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I believe it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness is proclaimed, not by works, but by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. God, I am not ashamed of your gospel. Help me to never be ashamed of your gospel. So far I haven't maligned or watered down your word. Would you help me to speak your word even more clearly, more boldly, more faithfully in the days to come? That was Paul's prayer. What a marvelous use of his tongue. He used his mouth, he used his tongue to pray. And he urges us, the readers of Colossians 4, to do the same. As followers of Christ with Christ-following tongues, use those tongues to pray to God. And then secondly, as Christ-followers with Christ-following tongues, use those tongues to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And then thirdly, we find in verses 5 and 6, our Christ-following tongues should be witnessing to the lost. They should be witnessing to the lost. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Paul writes, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I don't know about you, but I love those verses. Look at verse 5 again. Paul uses the word outsiders. Now, he uses the word outsiders as we might use the word non-Christians or unbelievers. That's the word he uses here to describe those who are outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who are outside of Christ's family, outside of the church. So Paul tells us to be wise in the way that we act toward unbelievers, making the most of every opportunity. Every day Paul tried to make the most of every opportunity to point people to Christ with his actions and with his words. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us have had days, haven't we, 
when our tongues have not done a darn thing to point people to Jesus. Really? Honestly. We've all had those days. 24 hours, our tongues didn't do one darn thing to point people to Jesus. And then some of us, probably most of us, have days where our tongues have been guilty of doing the exact opposite. Not only during the course of the day did our tongues not draw people to Jesus, our tongues actually caused them to run for the hills. Left people saying, you know what? If you're a Christian and you want me to become like you, thanks but no thanks. I'd rather stay the way I am. You may not have ever thought about this before, but as Christians, we have a lot in common with President Donald Trump. Don't head for the hills yet. You know, bear with me. may not have ever thought about this. We have a lot in common with President Donald Trump because love him or hate him, here's the reality. Every single day, there are millions of Americans who are hanging on his every word and carefully scrutinizing his every action, just waiting for him to screw up so they can immediately say, I told you so. That's a reality. You say, well, that's the case with any president. Well, in recent years, you're probably right. But more so with our current president. Does that sound familiar or what? Because every single day of every week of every month, if you are a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have people around you who are just waiting for you to screw up. And as soon as you screw up, that person will jump at the opportunity to say, I told you so. I told you Christians were hypocrites. And look at what he just did. I told you Christians don't practice what they preach. And look at what she just did. Every single day, there are non-Christians and unbelievers around us that are just waiting for you and me to screw up. And you could say that especially applies to those in leadership. That's why in James 3.1 it says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you who teach will be judged even more strictly. That's true of God and that's true of us here on earth. And so when a Jimmy Swaggart or a Jim Baker or any number of followers of Jesus and leaders of the church who are in the spotlight have fallen, it's been devastating for the church. And so there's so many people around us that are so quick to jump at the opportunity to say they don't practice what they preach. I told you Christians are narrow-minded and judgmental. I told you Christians are bigoted and hateful. I told you Christians are intolerant and homophobic. I told you. Now, let me ask you, are Christians these things? That's the honest answer. Yeah, in some cases, Christians are. We've probably all known Christians who are narrow-minded. We've probably all known Christians who are hypocrites. We've probably all known Christians who are judgmental or hateful or intolerant or whatever. But I've been around thousands of Christians in my lifetime, and you know what I've discovered in my experience? Those Christians who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, those Christians who are truly trying to follow His Word and walk in Jesus as Christ's footsteps are not those things. But it's an uphill battle, isn't it? It's an uphill battle to prove this to many who Paul calls outsiders. 
That's why it's critical that we heed Paul's counsel to be wise in the way that we act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Notice in verses 5 and 6 that Paul tells us that we need to be wise in the way that we act and we need to be wise in the way that we speak. Those are the next two blanks on your handout. We need to be wise in the way that we act. We need to be wise in the way that we speak. This is godly counsel that we must follow as individuals when you are interacting with those on a daily basis who don't know Christ, maybe it's your husband or wife, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your mom or dad, maybe it's a classmate or a teacher, maybe it's a coworker or a boss, maybe it's your next door neighbor, whoever that is, as you're interacting with others as individuals on a daily basis, you must be very careful about how you act and speak because you represent Jesus Christ. You represent Jesus Christ. As I told her, Teenagers a couple weeks ago, I think they were heading to the mall or something. I said, number one, remember you represent Jesus Christ. Number two, remember you represent First Christian Church. Number three, remember you represent your families. It's critical that we remember those things. We represent Jesus Christ. We represent our church. And we want to act and speak faithfully in a way that draws them to Him. This is not something we need to carry out only as individuals, though. We also need to carry this out as families. Parents, I encourage you to have conversations with your kids, reminding them that as they step into the world, they represent Jesus Christ and they represent your family. When you are as a family going out into public, remember that it's not just that individuals in your family are being watched by unbelievers. Others around you, unbelievers, are watching your entire family as a unit because many people are curious how a real Christian family acts in the real world. And so when you're standing in that line as a family at Walmart and you're 10 minutes late for whatever you're going to and that checkout lady must have been hired about five minutes ago because she's the slowest checkout lady you have seen in your entire life and the person in front of you has 117 coupons for two items and your kids are reaching for every little piece of candy in the candy display strategically placed by the founder of Walmart, knowing that those kids are going to grab it, and you're going to be up to here with them asking, can I have this, can I have that? So you'll say, go ahead this time, and spend more money in their store. When you're in that line at Walmart, and that line's way too long, people are watching. When you're over there at Cinemark, and you're there at the box office, and you're looking on the screen at all the movies that are being played in the next half hour or an hour, and you're choosing which movie to take your family into to watch, people are watching you and which movie you choose. When you're sitting at the restaurant, when you're dropping your kids off at school, when you're at work, wherever you are with your family, people are watching, and we have to be so careful that we speak and act in a way that points people to Christ, not drive them away from Him. We have to be careful as families, and we have to be careful as a church family. Because on a regular basis, visitors come into this place and they're watching to see what Christians act like in church. Honestly, you think I'm about to lower the boom, don't you? But I'm not. Honestly, I'm very proud of how this church treats visitors that walk through the door. I'm extremely proud of the fact that I hear feedback over and over again. From visitors that go to other churches and say, you know, I came in, I sat through the service, I left, and not a single person 
even said hi to me. But I came to First Christian Church and I felt at home. That's a wonderful thing. And those are not just comments I hear from guys, but from girls, from young and old. Comments we hear from those who are black or white or Hispanic or yellow or polka dot or whatever color they may be. Comments we hear from people who are struggling with any number of sins. We have visitors come in who are struggling with drugs or alcohol and you don't discriminate among those who have a certain addiction. You invite them and you love them. And you warmly have them come in to hear the truth of God's Word. We have individuals coming in who deal with various sexual sins. Visitors who come in who are living together with their boyfriend or girlfriend. That's clearly against God's Word, but you never show them the door. You accept them with warm and open arms and allow them an opportunity to come in and hear the truth from God's Word. We have individuals coming in that have just divorced their spouse. You don't discriminate. You love them. We have individuals coming in who are homosexual and struggling with same-sex attractions. and You invite them and with warm and open arms and love on them. And you see what happens is, church, when we're doing this faithfully as a church family, those who come in saying, you know what, I'm wanting to find out more about God. I'm, I'm curious about God. Everything I've tried hasn't worked. But I found also the church doesn't work. And I found in my experience that Christians don't work. But I'm hungry enough to give it a try anyways. And for some people walking through the door, it's their very last attempt to give God one last chance. And some people walk through that door and they've got that barrier up because they've convinced themselves that Christians are hateful. They've convinced themselves that Christians are mean. Christians are hypocrites. Christians do discriminate against those with different sins than they have. And what happens is when you invite them in with warm and open and loving arms, we find that as the visitors come in, those walls begin to be torn down. And so what happens is when I step up to share the Word from God's true Word, when I step up to to share the Scripture, we find that visitors often have already, by the time I step up, begun to take their walls down so they can hear the truth in a way they may not have heard it a half hour earlier. You don't realize how much of an impact you have on people receiving the Word on a Sunday morning. Through your prayers, your prayers help tear down those walls so people can hear the truth. Your love helped tear down the walls so people can hear the truth. And you know me well enough to know that I'm going to preach God's Word faithfully and truthfully even when it's something that is uncomfortable, even when it's something we don't want to hear. But if we were chasing people off in the first five minutes that they stepped through the door, they would never hear the truth. But time and time again over the years, we find people coming in and as they begin to take down those walls because of your love, because of your warmness, because of your genuineness, because of your compassion, because of your kindness, they will hear me step up and share that something in their life is not right with God. They will listen as I let them know that they have a holy God who created them that expects them to repent of their sin and come to Him and seek forgiveness that only He can offer. People hear the Word as they're primed with love and grace and mercy and warmth and kindness.
Way to go, church. Way to go. Paul says a curious thing here in verse 6. Let your conversations be always full of grace. I think Paul knew our culture pretty well 2,000 years ago. Because we know that our conversations these days tend to be full of skepticism. Tend to be full of cynicism. Tend to be full of sarcasm, right? Uh, Guilty as charged. I can be a sarcastic booger. Our conversations tend to be filled with complaining and griping and murmuring and arguing and sometimes even gossip. And he says, let your conversation be always full of grace. That non-Christian who is next to you can hear griping and complaining and bickering and foul language anywhere they go. But when they're around you, make sure they're hearing some conversations that are full of grace. What a beautiful reminder for us. But not just full of grace. Our conversations need to be seasoned with salt. What an odd thing for him to say. What does it mean for our conversations to be seasoned with salt? Well, salt really does three things. You could find more than three. But there are three main things that that salt does. Number one, salt preserves. Salt preserves. Remember in Paul's day, they had no refrigerators. So if they wanted to keep meat and have it save and not spoil, they would oftentimes douse it in salt. It was a preservative in his day. And so it kept food from spoiling and becoming corrupted in a similar way in our culture that is sinking deeper and deeper into a moral cesspool. Our words should work to preserve what is good and right and true and pure. Whether it's at home or at school or at work, be the voice of moral purity when you speak. Be the voice of compassion. Be the voice of truth. Salt preserves, but salt doesn't simply preserve. Number two, salt flavors. And that seems to be the main one Paul has in mind here because notice he says, make sure your conversations are seasoned with salt. So salt flavors, salt seasons. How many of you, let me ask you, love French fries or potato chips? Okay, if, it, if you have a choice between sweet or savory, many of us go savory. We love salty snacks, right? How are those potato chips or French fries without salt? Makes a difference, doesn't it? You go to In-N-Out, you've got those piping hot fries, mm-mm-mm, and you take a bite of one, oh, no. It's like raw, nasty potato. What a difference salt makes. It brings out the flavor. It brings out the flavor. So if you as a Christian are called to have your conversations seasoned with salt, it means you bring out the flavor of Jesus. You bring out the uh, beauty of Christianity and the wonder of this thing we call First Christian Church. Oh, you make sure those conversations about your church and about your Savior are seasoned with salt. Now, let me ask you, how many of you are Christians, you're born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ? Just quickly raise your hands. How many of you just raised your hand really, really enjoy a boring sermon? Okay. Oh, Melbourne raised his hand briefly, but he, he decided he changed his mind. So let me ask you, If you as Christians don't like a boring sermon, even though you already love Jesus, and you already believe God's Word, and you already have heard lots of good sermons over the years, 
If you don't like a boring sermon, why on earth would we talk in a boring way about Jesus to someone who's never accepted Christ? And so I have been taught from a a, a pretty young adult age in college. I remember one of my professors, I couldn't even tell you offhand which one it was, but early on in my training for ministry, I was taught this. Dane, consider it a sin to bore people with the gospel. It's one of the reasons I put so much energy into presenting the Word of God every week. Because I do consider it a sin to bore people with the gospel. And that doesn't just go for Christians, it certainly goes for non-Christians. So when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about our church, when we talk about what the Lord has done in our lives, when we share our testimonies, folks, season it with salt. Put some energy into it. Put some enthusiasm into it. Put some joy into it. Because if you don't like listening to a boring sermon about the Savior you've already accepted, certainly someone doesn't want to hear a boring talk about Jesus who hasn't even chosen to accept Him yet. Number three. Number three, salt creates thirst. Salt creates thirst. Now, you go to a movie theater and you go to the concession stand and you buy yourself one of those $17 tubs of popcorn. Now, when you buy that $17 tub of popcorn, that thing is caked in salt. How come? The owners of that movie theater are happy that you bought that $17 tub of popcorn, but they want to make you so thirsty after you get through half of that that you come back to the concession stand and buy that $17 soda. And so that way they're making 34 bucks instead of just 17 They'll cake that thing in salt. It used to be the same way on airplanes. Man, they'd give you those salty peanuts for free in the good old days. Why would they give you all those salty peanuts? So you'd get thirsty. They're halfway through a five-hour flight and say, hit me again, Sam, with one of those drinks I have to pay for. And so we do that. We, as in restaurants, they do this. In movie theaters, they do this. They cover it in salt because it naturally makes us thirsty. It makes us thirsty. And I want to end this message by asking you two simple questions. Number one, does your life make unbelievers thirsty for Jesus? Does your life make unbelievers thirsty for Jesus? The things that you do, the choices that you make, your behavior out in public, does it make people thirsty for Jesus? And question number two, do your words make unbelievers thirsty? For Jesus. We've got these tongues of ours that can get us into a lot of trouble. We talked about in chapter 3 how so often our tongues get dragged back into the grave. And one of those things our tongues do, we're dragged back into filthy language. Some of you watch your tongues on Sunday mornings and turn around and drop the F and SH bombs on Monday. Some of you say, I never do that. It doesn't come out of my mouth. Yeah, but I've seen what some of you put on social media. And if you've got it plastered all over Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat, it's the same thing. We have to watch what comes out of our mouth. It shouldn't be filth that pulls people away from Jesus. We should be using these tongues of ours to pray. We should be using these tongues of ours to speak the truth of God's Word, to proclaim His Word to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. And we need to make sure that our tongues are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people that need to hear it. God has called us to season our words, to make sure that they create thirst 
in those we speak to. So when someone finishes talking to me about Jesus, and I share with them what Jesus has done in my life, and I share with them what Jesus did on the cross, and I share with them my experience of how Jesus has worked in many other lives around me over the years, I hope that after that conversation, that person is a little hungrier and a little thirstier to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their lives. We're given an incredible challenge, Christians, to point people to Him. And we don't want to blow it by what comes out of our mouths. Let's make sure these tongues of ours are used for the glory of God to pray, to proclaim, and to share His Word. Lord Jesus, we come to You thanking You for the gift of these tongues. Help us to use them for You, for Your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, what a great day it is to do that. We're going to stand right now as our praise team comes up. And If you need prayer, we'll be in the front, we'll be in the rear. You let us know. Come talk to one of us. Whichever one of us looks the least scary, you just come and say, hey, would you pray with me? If you need to find out more about accepting Jesus and following Him as Lord and Savior, you come, whatever that decision may be today. The song that Annabelle's about to lead us in. It's one of my favorite new songs we sing here at FCC. And if we're